and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, wherever you are around the world. Uh, We're in the kind of conference season here in the United Kingdom, Labour conference this week, the Tory conference next week. And so obviously today I'll be reflecting on the Labour conference so far. We've also got brilliant questions from uh, a wide variety of listeners and we'll be coming to them shortly as well on a whole range of uh, different topics. Um, And oh yeah, before I begin with my reflections on the Labour conference, King's Place live on Monday, October the 11th. That will be after the Tory conference. Uh, Politics will then be taking shape for the autumn. A huge amount will be whirling around by then. So do join me. Some of you have tweeted me or emailed me saying, what about the stream tickets? They are on sale too. It will be stream live so you can get stream tickets. But if you can come along, please do. We had a lot of fun in the hall last time. Sensational twists and turns and predictions that have all turned true. Um, I think I mentioned it last week, but, you know, after the cabinet reshuffle, I look back to the show in September and the geniuses in the audience, someone predicting a great future for Lee Rowley and what happens? He's in the government as a junior minister. We're all going to follow Lee Rowley from now on. I'm thinking of doing a Lee Rowley special. Uh, Someone else said, watch out for Liz Truss as a possible next leader. She becomes foreign secretary. So do come along on Monday, October the 11th to get not only a sense of what is going on, but a profound sense of what might happen next. And we'll do a Lee Rowley special one of these days. I have to say, I had to say to the audience member who talked about Lee Rowley, just remind me who Lee Rowley is. Well, as I say, within days he was in the government. Uh, Everyone watches uh, the Rock and Roll Politics live show. So do come along if you can or watch on the stream. Now, the Labour conference. Of course, opposition, as I've said here many times before, and most emphatically not in a derogatory way, is an art form. You cannot be judged by policy implementation because you have no power to implement policies. Uh, So you have to give the impression of dynamism, purpose and momentum. And it always bewilders me that Labour leaders, and it's always Labour leaders, feel that as part of this uh, projection, they need to trigger a kind of internal, civil war is a huge exaggeration, but you know what I mean, a series of internal moves that pisses off a section of a uh, your own party very visibly. And uh, Tory leaders don't do it and don't come under the same pressure. It's an absolute myth in British politics that leaders who do this make electoral gains. And it's always Labour leaders who tend to fall into this trap. Um, take David Cameron. I, I tweeted the other day, it's a myth in British politics that you know taking on your party in inverted commas produces electoral gains. And Tory leaders don't do it. Um, And some say, well, what about David Cameron? Most emphatically, he did not uh, take on his party. Maybe he should have done. That's a different argument. But he won an election by not taking on his party, by appeasing his party. Uh, The Conservatives went into the 2015 election uh, with a turbocharged Thatcherite agenda proposing real spending cuts as a response to the financial crash. Did I say 2015? I meant 2010. Um, They weren't challenged on Europe, the big issue that the Tories needed challenging on. For sure, he had said nice things about, you know, getting more women into the party and things. But this is hardly taking a party on, saying, oh, we need more women candidates. He didn't challenge his party. Now, see, you could argue that he should have done, but he got into power and he didn't challenge his party. And and he was prime minister, you know, famously up until the referendum. Um, Thatcher is a really interesting example because she became Tory leader in 1975 and was clearly at odds with the sort of prevailing 
One Nation, Ted Heath, Willie Whitelaw, approach to economic policy and all kinds of other things. Far from taking them on in opposition, you know, Whitelaw was her deputy, half her shadow cabinet were full of people who she disagreed with. What she did, and this is the right way of doing things, is you win an election uh, with a sort of affectation or the uh, uh, sort of device of unity. And then you as a leader prevail when you are stronger. Uh, people say, oh, what about Tony Blair? Well, A, Tony Blair inherited a party that had been greatly changed by the endeavours of Neil Kinnock and John Smith. B, Clause 4 was a kind of icing on the cake. He was already 30 points ahead in the polls. And, uh, you know, it was not that risky a move. Harold Wilson had um, said Clause 4 was outdated kind of 15 years earlier. And so this kind of pressure that evidently Keir Starmer felt to open the conference with a whole range of kind of internal wranglings. And so the headlines were about splits and turmoil. I think falls into that trap. I look back to the early phase of Starmer's leadership. And he very successfully did what many thought was impossible. He, A, he won, and many people before the leadership election uh, thought that only a Corbynista could win. But Starmer won, and it's evidence that people, even this membership of the Labour Party, wanted someone who they assumed would be a credible potential prime minister. So he won. Uh, he completely changed the shadow cabinet. He completely changed Labour Party headquarters and kept everybody more or less together. When he started to stir it internally um, with the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, which, as you know, in this podcast, I've argued was both a strategic mistake and an overreaction. That's, in a way, when the trouble began with him. He had brilliantly succeeded in making some quite big changes internally without causing huge amounts of internal dissent in response. That is the art in opposition when you're in a relatively weak position. But after the suspension of Corbyn, of course, a lot of the commentators said, oh, yeah, what a sign of strength and all the rest of it. It actually began the headlines about Labour splits. It gave Jeremy Corbyn a new platform as a sort of martyred figure when before that point he had kept a very low profile. Remember the biggest discipline on a former Labour leader is the defeat, the election defeat. For any leader, is traumatic. That heavy defeat, his own love of his constituency, his own relief on some levels of no longer being leader, meant that Jeremy Corbyn was a low-profile figure. Uh, the media weren't going on about him. The media, on the whole, were quite impressed with Keir Starmer. And then the suspension. I remember doing an interview the week in Westminster, there was a discussion with Polly Toynbee and Andrew Fisher. And both of them, and, and Polly Toynbee was a big critic of the Corbyn era, and of course Andrew Fisher worked with Corbyn, both of them were praising Keir Starmer. Then once the interview finished, um, we all went away, or it was during the lockdown actually, um, news came out that Rebecca Long-Bailey had been sacked from the shadow cabinet by Starmer. And we obviously had to re-record the interview to reflect that. And uh, that sense that Starmer was pulling it off went immediately with Andrew Fisher becoming more critical. Now, again, maybe the Long Bailey thing, I can't even remember the cause. She liked an article by an actress uh, which could have been seen as a sort of anti-Semitic gesture. Um, maybe it was the right thing to do. But with Corbyn added on top of that, he lost 
the uh, loyalty is the wrong word, but the ascent of a wing of his party who became much more suspicious about his intentions. And um, then to move on to his internal manoeuvring at the beginning of the conference, all voters will notice is are the headlines about the divisions. They won't read his Fabian pamphlet. Um, and so that is the context of the opening. And as I say, the art is to make voters think, oh yeah, look at this party. They're the future. He's the future. And he's still got the chance, by the way. I've Obviously, you might be listening to this later in the week after his speech, and that might be a big moment. Um, but that is the art. It's not to create divisions. Arguably, Neil Kinnock had no choice. Well, he had certainly no choice to make internal, massive internal changes to the Labour Party. But it's very interesting, in this book I've written on Prime Ministers We Never Had, there's a chapter on Neil Kinnock. And obviously part of the focus is on his famous 1985 conference speech where he launched that dramatic attack on militant uh, from the hall with uh, people like Derek Hatton in the audience. It was a moment of electric theatre, one of the great speeches of the second half of the 20th century in British politics. But... It's a myth that it did Labour that much good electorally. Uh, they were slaughtered two years later in the 87 election. I covered, I was working in the North East at the time, and covered the by-election that followed uh, Neil Kinnock's speech in Tyne Bridge. And I detected no great new enthusiasm for him or Labour. Obviously, it was a Labour seat in those days. Um, but... You know, it's it's sort of, and then people tweeted me when I said, you know, it's a myth that these internal conflicts help a leader. And uh, uh, Mike Gapes, a, a, a former Labour MP who joined Change UK, said, well, it led the route to Tony Blair's win in 97. And of course, the path was cleared. But it took one hell of a long time, 12 further years and if that were to apply in this conference, it would mean another, what, three, four terms of a Conservative government on top of the current four terms. I mean, eight terms would, you know, I mean, this is all too long to wait. It's much better in a way to cast the spell, uh, to create an impression of unity. And it is only an impression with both the bigger parties. They are broad churches. You know, we're, we're having the German election at the moment. They have a, an electoral system which allows a variety of different parties to stand in the hope of being part of a government. We have two big parties, uh, one of which will form a government, usually, uh, for the whole of the UK uh, at Westminster. And they are coalitions. And so why there is this constant pressure for Labour leaders to torment the coalition, to show to the voters that the coalition is not really sustainable. So I, 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 don't, I don't understand it, really. Um, and I'll tell you something else as well, which I often reflect on. Uh, it was during the Corbyn leadership, the think tank, the IPPR, um, issued a big report on economic policy. Now, the IPPR is kind of centre-left, but you, you, no one would call it sort of uh, a Corbynista outfit or whatever. And this, it was, it was a radical plan. And I remember one of the authors saying to me, you know, actually Labour are not as divided as they think they are, because that report was welcomed by Rachel Reeves, who was out of the shadow cabinet at the time, now shadow chancellor, doing well, I think. Um, and uh, John McDonnell, who was then shadow chancellor, kind of launched the report at one of uh, an event at the Labour Party conference saying this could be our beverage. So here was the heart of economic policy, which is absolutely the focus of any opposition. And Rachel Reeves and McDonnell 
both welcomed it. Now, that doesn't mean they were dancing together on all aspects of economic policy. Of course they weren't. But a clever leader could have brought them closer together uh, around that report. But instead, of course, Labour were completely at war at that point. Largely, as someone else said to me at that event over the past, you know, what Jeremy Corbyn was up to in the 70s with the IRA or whatever, and what the Blairites did in the build-up to the war in Iraq from the other side. So all these kind of disputes and battles and so on. But there was an economic programme which kind of brought them together. So anyway, you know, um, I, I think it was a mistaken strategy. I think Keir Starmer, one of the things that leaders of the opposition who aren't ahead in the polls find is that they are inundated with, in inverted commas, advice. From us lot, journalists, columnists, um, to uh, all wings, all wings, both wings of a political party. And I think one of the problems for Keir Starmer is that the stars of the new Labour era were so young when they peaked that they're still quite young now. I mean, they're in their 60s, uh, but but pretty uh, kind of politically vibrant still. So, you know, I'm sure it is true that Peter Mandelson, for example, uh, offers, in inverted commas, advice. Um, and Keir Starmer will look at that group and say, well, at least they won elections and feel compelled at times to follow that advice, which I assume would have been take on the party, show that you're strong by taking them on, send a signal to the electorate that Corbynism is dead kind of thing. Um, but it's a real problem for a Labour leader, having former leaders hanging over you. Tony Blair was quite lucky in 1994 in one sense. Um, Harold Wilson by then was uh, very ill uh, and he died before Labour got into power. And, you know, to some extent what Keir has done by turning to new Labour, um, it would be the equivalent of Tony Blair sort of appointing, I don't know, Joe Haynes and Bernard Donoghue, two stalwarts of number 10 in the Wilson-Callaghan era. Um, to be key sort of advisors in some form or another. Uh, and so I can understand it. When you're not ahead in the polls, you turn around and look for advice and guidance to, to, to lead you to um, a path that ends up in victory. But I would be very wary of following the advice of those who triumphed in previous eras, because the era now is so different. Even, you know, by the way, I think with Peter Mandelson, he was, his brilliance wasn't actually in the new Labour era. It was in the 1980s uh, when he joined Labour as uh, director of communications in the mid 80s, when the Labour Party then did not have a clue how to project. And he made them professional and projected outwards and worked tirelessly at a point when there was absolutely no chance of Labour securing power, certainly in the 87 election, which was very professionally conducted. And I think his perspective is, is shaped much more by the 80s than anything else and the battles they had then with the left, which makes him so angry that Corbynism rose and he wants to see it destroyed and sees that as the only route. So, but, but, you know, the act of destruction is in itself destructive. Um, he also has regular <laughs> advice from a former vote-winning leader, Tony Blair. And then, you know, the, the, everyone's advising. They'll all stop if Labour can move into an opinion poll lead. And then he, Kistama, becomes more commanding because he looks then as a possible uh, next prime minister and can then take his own advice. Um, well, you, you know, I'm, I'm recording this before the leader's speech on the Wednesday. I think the Fabian pamphlet he wrote uh, pointed the way to some extent to uh, a more radical path than, you know, the caricature has it of this sort of cautious figure. It was basically an argument for active government in various different ways uh, that... Uh, pamphlet and, and and celebrating the 
communal against the individual and so on. Uh, now, this isn't going to sort of create front page headlines, um, but, you know, it was, I think, an important uh, attempt to set out a broad, not yet clearly defined, path. And evidently, his speech will have to do much more than that. Uh, you know, well, tune in next week, as they say. Um, we'll it, leader speeches can change the mood and the, of politics. Uh, it doesn't happen that often. I think um, the Cameron speech and the Osborne speech at the Tory conference in 2007 was successful enough to contribute to Gordon Brown's decision not to call an early election. Um, I think the degree to which politics changed after Neil Kinnock's famous 85 speech, by the way, in that speech, as I say in my chapter on Neil Kinnock in The Prime Ministers We Never Had, there was the most brilliant argument for the role of the state. Um, and he, he, he knew that Margaret Thatcher had used or, or deployed like weapons, words like freedom. Uh, and he tried to seize the term back for labour, by arguing that the state could free people. None of it got noticed because of the attack on militant. And he, he again several times put the case, famously in 1987 when Joe Biden then nicked the speech about why was I the first Kinnock of a thousand generations to go to university and so on. But the internal stuff dominated. And often the media praised Kinnock for being brave and things. But then, you know, the newspapers were never going to back him. And so newspapers like the Times, it was a yeah, yeah, good old, good old Neil Kinnock for taking on his party. And then at the election, they would say, of course, you've got to vote Conservative, Neil Kinnock, not Prime Ministerial, he's at war with his party. You know, that's that's the danger of it all. Um, but it's, you know, Keir Starmer, some of the criticism is ridiculous. Like, you know, oh, he's, it's got, he's got no purpose or idea. You don't leave a successful job in the law you know, one of the most senior lawyers in the land, uh, DPP and, you know, all the rest of it, um, to go into politics without a sense of uh, purpose. And you certainly don't go into the Labour Party, which in England tends to lose elections, without a kind of desire to bring about change and uh, a greater sense of social justice and so on. Um, and, I, you know, the pandemic didn't give him the space to spell any of this out. It would have been ridiculous um, as the deaths were piling up to start outlining a post-pandemic vision. So this is his chance. Now, we'll analyse next week, uh, as well as looking ahead to the Tories, whether he takes it in terms of the policy agenda and the values that arise from it. But I would just make this one final observation before coming on to your brilliant questions. Um, that is, I quite often read Keir Starmer, the besieged leader, Keir Starmer just an, in an impossible position. No. Uh, in many ways, he is uh, the luckiest leader of the opposition in recent times. Um, it's a terrible thing for the country. But when you have people queuing up for petrol, when you have um, labour shortages in every sector uh, which was predicted with the Brexit uh, outcome, uh, the farming sector, you know, fruit and vegetables not being picked. I was down in Cornwall recently, daffodils and flowers that were normally picked rotted, a uh, huge value lost. Uh, by the way, while I was there and others of you holidayed in Britain this summer will know, restaurants closing, cafes pleading for work. Um, they haven't got the Eastern Europeans they used to have. And um, it's a crisis on, in so many sectors and very tangible when you see queues for petrol and gas prices and national insurance going up for a social care 
programme, even though it's not paying for social care. These are not only obvious open goals for an opposition leader, uh, but they are, uh, but they also give an opposition leader a chance while obviously highlighting these uh, situations and the government's culpability to explain why it's not just an issue of competence, though obviously that's part of it, but it's about values and ideas and the policies that arise from them. Brexit began as an idea. Uh, the reluctance to plan ahead is based partly on an assumption that markets will do the business, even though it's obvious that the energy market is so flawed and contradictory and a mess that it needs reconfiguring. I wouldn't rule out, by the way, as part of that reconfiguration, some state ownership when some of these companies go bust. Um, Andrew Adonis is not a great fan of state ownership. Fully supported the idea of taking over a rail company when it went bust. What is it that one? You know, the line to Edinburgh. I think uh, one of those. Anyway, ownership is not something that uh, a Labour leader should wholly concede. I don't think. Um, you know, the, the the Conservative Party under Thatcher and Cameron were obsessed with ownership, privatising. You know, that was their answer to the debate on ownership. And it can be addressed with different options, not necessarily expensive nationalisations where you have to pay billions in compensation. But as part of a reconfiguration of markets that clearly aren't working. So there are loads of kind of arguments that apply in favour of a different position, as well as highlighting the faults in a government's position. I mean, this is kind of, it's become a cliche, so it's more like the 70s, but when you have a cost of living crisis and queues and food shortages and empty shelves, well, you know, if an opposition can't make the most of that, it's not going to get a better chance. So anyway, let's see how that week develops. And if you are listening to this after the week has developed, you can kind of join the dots, and we all will next week. Now. On to your brilliant questions, some of which refer to this. Uh, Dominica Jewell, a regular correspondent from France. If the petrol shortages are nothing to do with Brexit, how come the only so far visible Tory government solution is to reverse the Brexit dogma by seeking to recruit EU staff? Um, yeah, exactly. And um, of course it's to do with Brexit. And, you know, it is... It is so obvious. It, it shows the degree to which Brexit does raise complex questions. You know, the British economy was dependent on lots of people from Eastern Europe willing to come here and work for low wages in pretty bad conditions. However, as many have made clear, the answer wasn't to leave the European Union. You can raise those conditions, raise the wages, um, but also have a labour force that meets the demand in this country. Um, yeah, and it is hilarious, the, you know, contorted answers to avoid any acknowledgement that even though they're actually lifting constraints to get more people in from Europe, um, it's absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. And Keir Starmer, as we've reflected many times here, he's got an open goal on Brexit, but silence is not the way of scoring the goals. Uh, Graham Golding from Edinburgh, uh, he, he wonders about Michael Gove, who has this reputation, even, you know, non-Tory columnists say, oh, fantastic that Gove is head of levelling up because he's the one who gets things done. He's the great reformer. And Graham Golding says, um, I remember discussing Mr Gove with the head where I was a governor. This was obviously in, uh, in a school when uh, uh, Gove was uh, education secretary. Uh we both we are both left of centre, but thought Mr. Gove might make a decent Secretary of State. He was clever, thoughtful, and a powerful player, which is important for funding. Yeah, good point. He had an in with Cameron and Osborne. As it turned out, he had little idea how to run such a complex organisation and had little knowledge of the culture in English state education. Yeah, um, I, I, I think he's overestimated as uh, this brilliant 
practical doer. Um, you know, he was interesting at justice, as Justice Secretary. And genuinely, I think, outraged at the state of prisons, wanted to do something. He wasn't there long enough even to be tested in that post. And in education, I think his time there um, is, is overestimated in terms of uh, what he did uh, by his admirers. Um, I, I, I'm with you, Graham, and you started off with an assumption that he could do well. So it wasn't as if you were against him at the beginning. Thank you. That's very interesting. Uh, Jeff Strange, does Johnson gamble on going early in terms of an election to get his next five years in before the consequences in capital letters are revealed? Ah, the famous consequences. I don't think he will go early, uh, Jeff. I think that uh, you mentioned in the email Theresa May's mistake of going early. Ted Heath went early and lost. Um, it's a risky thing to do because voters who are already edgy, even though uh, Johnson uh, is, for some reason, led off the hook by voters in a way that no other politician in modern times has been, um, they are so anti-politics and anti-elections, they might not forgive an early election, even from him. Although maybe they adore him so much, they would let him get away with that and give him another landslide before those consequences in capital letters. The big word in British politics begin to take even fuller form. But of course, already the consequences of Brexit are being played out more tangibly, actually, than I had anticipated. We haven't even got to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Frosty, again, you know, has been out and about. It's clearly not working. This is what he negotiated, hailed as a great triumph. Okay, uh, Noah Keat, I'm writing to ask about how you believe civic and political education can best be taught in primary and secondary schools in the most unbiased manner possible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely crucial this and it's it's difficult and challenging um i i assume uh noah writes this on the basis that uh, we need it uh you know the <coughs> excuse me um the i'm getting excited the level of awareness um is is so low um and um he writes, for example, at the time of the EU referendum in 2016, I was in year 10 and one of the few people in my year interested. Yeah, and that feeds on itself because, you know, if you're not interested as a teenager, you're not going to be interested probably when you're 30, 40, 50. And that partly explains, not wholly by any means, um, the success of Johnson, that I think most people aren't following it closely, and then he comes up and he makes them laugh, and they think, oh, good old Boris, you know. Uh, so I would put it, how you do it is a, it, it is a theme for a whole podcast, because it's about bringing all these things to life, politics to life. But I think you can do it in a way that's impartial. It, it might be a disaster if they all became polemical. You have got to show how these dramas are interesting in themselves, but touch every one of us every day of our lives. And But also don't play down the drama. That's a great way of getting involved. I, I'm kind of, as you all must be, else you wouldn't be listening to this, fascinated by the drama of politics and the unpredictability and the personal, wildly oscillating fates. Um, but also I'm fully aware that it touches all of us uh, profoundly. Uh, so, yeah, I'd make it compulsory in schools, but you have to make it interesting. I remember I had a politics teacher who, who got the name of the prime minister wrong, um, and, and was it was a kind of turn-off. Um, uh, anyway, thankfully it was interesting enough to get me hooked of its own accord, so to speak. Okay, Stephen Lamb. Um, Oh, he's, uh, he's got the book on Prime Ministers We Never Had. Uh, great. Um, only two subjects read so far. Stephen, get on with it. There are some interesting twists and turns in that book. Um, but I think both would have been good PMs. That must be the first two, I assume. Rab Butler and uh, Jenkins, Roy Jenkins, maybe. Anyway, um, he wonders about cabinet reshuffles. 
Um, the reshuffled cabinet seems to consist of Brexiteers or revokers, including Liz Truss and Grant Shapps. Jeremy Hunt is another member of the latter league, that is Remainers, who now basically support Brexit. I wonder how many Conservative MPs' principles have been sacrificed on the Brexit altar. Funny enough, I've written a piece about this for the New European this week, uh, Stephen. And it's good. I mean, Starmer rightly gets criticised for not scrutinising Brexit. Um, but what about those within the governing party who know the damage Johnson and Frost Brexit is causing, but remain silent? And there are a lot of them, and they've got a lot to answer for. Uh, Brad Dodd from Oxford, uh, he says he would like to see a national government made up of all parties to help overcome all the problems. Um, uh, I never thought I would say it, but please uh, join in Michael Heseltine and Ken Clark and so on. The trouble is, Brad, that, you know, national government works in a wartime situation or did, um, but they all will disagree with each other uh, about what needs to be done. Um, you know, you would have, I don't know, the sort of Blair, Cameron, Osborne, Clegg view. You would then have, you know, the kind of uh, Johnson view, as Sunak would be with that other lot. You'd have the Johnson kind of view where he'd half be with that lot, half with the kind of uh, left of centre Keynesians. You'd then have the Keynesians. You know, I, 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 where would it end? Not well, I suspect. Um Okay, next one. Uh, oh, uh, Colin Startup replies to those who were critical. Oh, yeah, Michael from Marseille. Yeah, Michael wrote about Rory Stewart being wrong about Afghanistan. Um, uh, 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 Colin says, Rory Stewart has highlighted that the withdrawal of military support was an unnecessary act. The West had a light, sustainable presence of about 2,500 soldiers and there had been no recent USGB casualties. The gains of a fledgling and flawed democracy, such as a flourishing small business community and girls' education, have now been lost. So um, he agrees, uh, Colin, with uh, Stuart that um, actually it was worth hanging on in there, um, if that's not too crude a phrase to sum up a picture of dark complexity. Alan writes, you haven't put your surname in, Alan, but I can see this, you've written some of this in Welsh, so I kind of know where you're from. Um, I've been enjoying your Prime Minister series, but it made me think for some reason of Nigel Farage. After Blair, he's probably the most influential politician for the last 20 years. Um, even though he didn't make it into Parliament. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a huge uh, player, um, or was, um, but only because of the weakness of David Cameron. Uh, Farage managed to terrify Cameron into holding the referendum because Cameron feared that if he didn't offer the referendum, he would face many more def defections to, what was it then, UKIP, I think. Was it the Brexit party by then? I think it was still UKIP, and therefore he offered the referendum. But I think there were way. I mean, Farage is a very effective communicator. I've pr praised him as an interviewer on GB TV. There you go. Um, uh, but it it was not Farage alone. It was the weakness of Cameron uh, that got him to be so influential. Uh, ben Corrigan, uh, love the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, I often listen whilst walking along Sandbanks Beach in Paul. We've got a lot of people who listen to the podcast walking along Sandbanks Beach in Paul. That's where Harry Redknapp lives, isn't it? The old uh, Spurs manager. Old as in, well, he is old as well, but former. Um, he wonders, Ben wonders, whether another person who walks around there listening to the podcast, we've passed each other whilst both listening to you. What a What a great thought. Uh, can you help me understand why housing isn't higher up a party's agenda? Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting question, this, uh, and why it's not higher up a media agenda as well. I was the BBC's local government and housing correspondent uh, for a time, and it was during the poll tax, actually. Uh, I was very young to be a BBC correspondent. This was the kind of late 80s, and... Um, 
obviously I was on all the time with the poll tax. People told me when I got this job, oh, you'll never be on. It's all such boring issues. But the poll tax meant I was on all the time, on the BBC, the Today programme, everything. But housing was much harder to get on air. And I used to say to editors, oh, there's this big housing report out. And there's oh, housing. I say, well, look, we all need a house of some sort. We all live under a roof. It, it, this, this is a story that touches everyone. And yet it, it, it never got there. Now, in terms of politics, we know uh, why it's so much harder. Um, because of um, where you build the houses. And this is part of Gove's new brief. Let's see how he deals with it and keeps Tory MPs on side. Um, thank you very much for that, uh, Ben. Uh, A.V. Degger asks, Johnson isn't good at much, but he's good at three things as far as I can tell. Fathering children, winning elections and classics. Ah, yeah, that, they, that's quite a good summary of his strengths. I think that one of the texts that absolutely defines his political life is a pamphlet which he will know intimately by Cicero's brother, which translates as The Little Handbook on Electioneering. In it, one of the major tenets is promise everything to everyone. The best way to win voters is to tell them what they want to hear. This seems to me the way he has conducted his political and probably social life, and thus far there have been no real de deleterious, deleterious, uh, your favourite word about to come up, consequences. Uh, yeah, God, consequences are cropping up all over the place. Yeah, uh, well, how interesting. I don't didn't know about Cicero's brother and his handbook on electioneering. Uh, how useful do you think it is to look at very old political literature to extract learnings for today's environment? You've just done it. Very useful. If there is nobody to hold Johnson to account, uh, can there ever really be consequences? Yes. Uh, pol politics always leads to consequences. One decision connects to outcomes, and in the end, voters make the connections good or bad. So even with uh, a troubled opposition and a supine media, uh, there will be consequences even for Boris Johnson following Cicero's brother's advice. Thank you for that. I had no idea about that pamphlet. Uh, Alan Evans, looking at the party conferences from the view of opposition parties, are there any instances in recent history where events at a party conference have significantly changed the trajectory of a party? Trajectory. Yeah, well, I mentioned, Alan, the um, uh, the 2007 Tory conference, I think, did have an impact on Gordon Brown's thinking about calling an early election. Um, but not many do, really. Uh, what else? We've talked about Neil Kinnock in 85. Uh, Keir Starmer really hopes this week will. Uh, now it's his speech, because so far... The, the, by the way, I haven't even mentioned the Angela Rayner thing about scum and Tory scum. None of this would have happened or caused such a stir if there was this sense that Labour was the future and was defining the future and seizing the future. Um, so, but you're right to raise the question, party conferences on the whole, don't check. Another one, 81, uh, the Labour conference, the deputy leadership election result, Healy won. If Tony Benn had won, things would have been very different. But that's more about an election than a party conference, I guess. Uh, Steve Petrie, do government interventions in response to the gas crisis mark another nail in the coffin for the small state orthodoxy? Yeah, but you can see how tentative they are as they uh, make their moves. The interventions so far have been quite limited. But as ever in these crises... Uh, people turn to government and realise that a market can't necessarily work on its own. In, in this market, the solution would have to be massive increases now in gas prices for these companies to survive. But no government could allow that to happen, especially a government we're back to levelling up. Um, I, if I were Kiss Starmer, by the way, I would use levelling up 
take back control and all these other things. He kind of does in that Fabian pamphlet, but I would flesh them out, set up a leveling up commission, say, okay, we believe in this kind of thing. This is what we would do. Um, but yeah, it is, uh, it's going to be a period of active government, but you could see with this, um, petrol shortage because of the lack of lorry drivers uh look how weak it is you know well we might let five thousand in if they're lucky but we'll kick them out on christmas eve you know it's so uh graceless and inadequate um but we are in a much more status period as william hague uh, william hague acknowledged um in a very interesting article recently in the times uh, he was saying it positively. Uh, James Newman, the Tories don't do any of the one member, one vote rules. Yes, it's less democratic, but usually they end up electing better leaders, or at least better in the traditional sense of winning elections. Uh, yeah, Chris Mullin uh, tweeted to me, you know, the former Labour MP and minister, why don't Labour adopt the Tory party rules? It's quite, uh, it's, it's quite a good suggestion. Give the MPs the power to narrow it down to two and then put it to the party membership. Um, uh, it, it works in this sense that Tories tend to elect leaders that a majority of Tory MPs have backed. Now, that doesn't mean they get the right leader. Look at the one we've got at the moment. But it means they are invested in the project because they've supported that leader. Uh, Rick Frame, I was interested to hear your uh, latest analysis on Johnson's current position. That's where I was sort of arguing how powerful he is. I know history only goes so far to help us understand the present. It goes a long way, I think, Rick. I was racking my brain to remember if there were another prime minister since the war who is in gaining such a commanding position with an election victory, quickly found their authority slipping away. Yeah, interesting. Macmillan in 62, 63, yep, good point. Wilson in 67, yep, with the devaluation. Thatcher in 89, 90, yeah, these are all really good points. Big election victories followed by prime ministerial resignations or being forced out or a big loss of authority. Macmillan went, Thatcher was forced out, and Wilson never really fully recovered from the devaluation crisis so soon after his triumphant election victory in 66. Uh, very good. Rick says the podcast keeps him saying thank you very much. That's the highest praise I can get, actually. Thank you. Uh, Mark Easton, uh, great podcast. Thank you. Oh, this is, I hope it's keeping you sane, Mark, at least. Uh, I've been moved to email for the first time because of your comments in the last programme about the forthcoming changes to health service structures. I write as a former senior manager in the NHS who was involved in the early stages of the reforms. I think they're good for two reasons. Um, it moves the NS... This is the new set of reforms I assume you're referring to, Mark. It moves the NHS away from the competitive internal market and requires health and social care bodies in defined geographies to collaborate. It heralds the return of strategic planning involving all the NHS and local authority bodies in an area and corrects the 2012 Act, that was the Lansley Coalition Act, uh, to abolish planning in favour of the market. Yeah, that was my impression, Mark. Um, but I'm a big fan of... Um, uh, Bob Hudson, who listens to the podcast, I think, who's written about this and is very critical of the uh, government's uh, plans. But my understanding was, and I said this, and I think then Bob uh, Hudson, an NHS uh, specialist as well, um, uh, emailed this program or tweeted me or something, say, you know, program, podcast, um, that I got it wrong and th th this was a really haphazard set of propositions. But I'm interested to hear your view. That was my feeling about it, that it was addressing some of the atomization uh, that occurred in that 2012 uh, act um, after Cameron had declared that, you know, copying Blair about education, education, his three favourite letters in the world, NHS. And I think he did know what was going on. Now, uh, do you remember last week I said, if I've missed out any questions, please let me know. Well, I misread one. 
I got a great email from someone who was away on holiday in Mallorca. And I thought it, uh, I made the mistake of saying it was from Claire Mackey. Is it Mackey Claire? Claire Mackey or Claire? It must be Mackey, not Mackay. Mackey, yeah. But it wasn't Claire Mackey. I'm going to go back and find out who it was. This was uh, uh, Claire's question. I know that tweeted sound bites from speeches and exchanges at Prime Minister's questions can be quite powerful, but a lot of the interactions I see on Twitter are highly unattractive and self-serving. E.g. a spat earlier this year between a politician on the right of the Labour Party, Jess Phillips, and a journalist on the left, Owen Jones, made me so annoyed with both factions that I nearly resigned my membership there and then. I didn't engage with the tweets, so no one would have been any the wiser, which makes me wonder whether a lot of silent damage might be done by squabbles of this kind. As ever, thoroughly enjoying the podcast. When I last wrote, I remember this, I just had a baby. But now I'm coming to the end of my maternity leave and mostly listen as I walk around Walthamstow Wetlands with the buggy. I know Walthamstow Wetlands. I go there sometimes cycling and cross my mind to go running there. So I'll see you there, Claire, and wait. Anyway, yeah, it is... Twitter only registers the noise, not the silent alarm that accompanies some of it. Um, However, my view about Twitter is that it can inform if you use it properly. It can annoy, provoke. It's bloody dangerously addictive. Um, But we do have the freedom to switch off from it if we wish to, as you sort of did during that exchange between Owen Jones and Jess Phillips. I'm kind of hooked. Um, But anyway... Uh, Yeah. Uh, Rob Watson, it struck me as interesting to watch these videos that the more people experience about other cultures and places, then we might start to look at what we've got and raise some questions. He's talking about uh, Britain becoming, uh, you know, more internationalist again via sort of cultural things. And he's he you can look these up on YouTube. Uh, Rob sent me the links a liverpool after dark leicester after dark montpellier after dark porto tokyo after dark there's loads of stuff i wonder if it will make a difference as we bypass the bbc and mainstream media and develop habits for alternative forms of discovery yeah i listen i use youtube a hell of a lot youtube podcasts to be honest i think probably more than the scheduled bbc output Uh, Steve Jones, I wonder, is Johnson's strength partly built on smoke and mirrors? This is going back to my thesis that uh, for the moment he's the strongest prime minister, no, most powerful in modern times, uh, due to the relative weakness of the current Conservative Parliamentary Party. Yeah, it is a weak party. It is dependent on his victory in the 2019 election, which was a very personal victory. Um, And... Uh, it could, though, rise up and give him hell if um, he falls behind in the opinion polls. We've discussed this before. Polls determine a mood. And say with Keir Starmer, if he could propel himself and his party into a lead of some significance, he will become instantly seen as a more authoritative figure. Uh, oh, another question about Gove from Ian Fielding. Where does Michael Gove fit in? Not given a prestigious office by Johnson. What's his ambition? I, as a, Well, I said, Ian, uh, the, uh, on my reshuffle podcast, I, I think he's still pretty pivotal, Gove. I mean, he's been given levelling up to make sense of. Um, now, one of our earlier emailers raises questions about the effectiveness of him as a cabinet minister, but Johnson clearly thinks he is, and he's got to deliver, and I wonder whether he will. Darren Jones, loving the podcast, uh, currently my favourite, and the only one I listen to as soon as it comes out. Hooray! Thank you. Oh, and just ordered the book. Right, you know, uh, gold star email, da 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 My question is about the 2019 election. Joe Swinson and Jeremy Corbyn are certainly guilty of hubris by agreeing to an election in December 2019. Do you think there was any way to continue to box in Boris Johnson and his minority government? Yeah, I do. And 
they were bonkers to give him an election on the date he wanted during his honeymoon as a prime minister, relatively new prime minister. And that parliament, they had every right to keep it going. It was Theresa May who had called the election, not them. It produced a hung parliament. It had only been running for, what, under two years, and they let him have the election. Crazy. Um, Mark Knight, uh, in light of recent events in Canada, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the wisdom of early elections. Yeah, well, there's another one, Mark. Um, we had that earlier uh, question on it, too. They are unwise and risky. I don't think he'll do it, Boris Johnson. Uh, I think he might have to anyway wait for four years um, or three and a half. I think it could well be December 2019. So when would that be? Uh, December 20, December 21, December 22, uh, summer of 23, uh, at the earliest, I would suspect, um, uh, you know, because, oh, what am I talking about? Yeah, that would, that would be three and a half years on, even that's quite early, but you wouldn't want to have another winter election if you could avoid it. Um, Tom Webb, following on from Johnson's reshuffle. I wanted to ask your thoughts on whether British PMs overuse this particular power. Yeah, people are reshuffled, as you point out, uh, Tom, far too often. Uh, Tom points out, since 2016, the UK has had five foreign secretaries, six justice secretaries, seven culture secretaries. Yeah, it's crazy. The number of transport secretaries it's had. I mean, there are more transport secretaries than we've got trains. Um, it is utterly irresponsible way of doing things. And in a way, the one of the few good things about the coalition was that it prevented David Cameron from carrying out many reshuffles. They were just too nightmarish for him to uh, contemplate. So you had, for example, Theresa May staying at the Home Office for the full uh, time Cameron was Prime Minister, and there were very few significant changes. Um, and yeah, it's a device used far too often. And it's absolutely embedded, you know, oh, the reshuffle is going to be coming up and then it happens. And then soon, oh, there's going to be another one. And um, and it rarely stabilizes a government. It rarely changes direction of policy very much. But it just means that no cabinet ministers can establish individual authority over a department. They're gone before they can do very much. And I think it's a real problem. Well, there we are. God, it's, a, it's another hour podcast. Um, and uh, that's down to your brilliant questions. So there's a lot hanging in the air at the end of this. Oh, by the way, if I still haven't read out questions when I said I would read them out, and you've emailed me to say, can you read them? And I still haven't read them out. We've had hundreds of emails this week. Please alert me again. Uh, but I think I've read out those that I didn't read out last week, if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm going to check up who did email me from New Yorker. You'll be back now. Um, it wasn't Claire. But uh, sorry, when I meant things were hanging in the air, I didn't really so much mean your emails. Uh, can Keir Starmer deliver in his leader's speech? Um, there's a lot of weight hanging on it, too much really. Um, uh, but let's let's see. Uh, that's on Wednesday. Some of you will be listening to it after that's happened. Um, and then there's the build-up for a Conservative conference in the most extraordinary times. Um, and and yet I suspect there will be a sort of fairly exuberant air. Although I reckon this labour shortage story would have deepened by then, the crisis. Uh, and far from being resolved with 5,000 visas doled out reluctantly um, for a period of time that would not give job security or accommodation security to, to anyone. And say kicked out on Christmas Eve. Anyway, well, what twists and turns? Don't forget, book your tickets for Monday, October the 11th at King's Place. It's also now streaming tickets are available on the King's Place website. And please uh, email me uh, more brilliant questions for next week. Um, the email address, which I'm, if you're wondering what it is, it's um, uh, at the end, about an hour in, if you're all out running or baking bread or rowing, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. steverick14 
at icloud.com. Have a great week and let's see where we are in this extraordinary period of British politics and economics and society um, when we all gather again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.